welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Senek, and the Libertarian is Professor Richard Epstein, the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, a Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the future of unions. And Richard, we're doing something a little different today. Uh, basing our talk on a symposium that you recently participated in over at Law and Liberty, uh, along with a trio of pretty smart guys, Sam Hammond, Mark Pulliam, and Michael Lind, in which the three of you were discussing and debating the future of uh, labor unions, organized labor in this country. And I encourage everyone to go read the exchanges, which cover a lot of ground. So probably a good topic for us in the wake of Labor Day. I want to, in our discussion, kind of leave public sector unions mostly to the side today. We've talked about them a lot on the show in the past, but this symposium even only talks about them tangentially. So, so let's focus on the private sector unions. And before we get into some of the flashpoints in this debate, I'd like you to sort of run a diagnostic for us on, on where we are today. So you talk in your initial piece at Law and Liberty about why we should think about unions as a monopoly problem and also how much of what's wrong in your judgment with the legal status of unions, comes out of the National Labor Relations Act from the New Deal era. So set the table for us here as to why the status quo is so misbegotten. Well, the status quo starts with the proposition uh, that ordinary competitive forces do not give the, quote, the National Labor Relations Act the full freedom of contract, the full liberty of contract to workers. And the only way they could have, quote, full freedom of contract is essentially to be able to band together. Uh, that's a very nice word for saying that if you band together, you form a cartel. And your effort is to try and uh, reduce the amount of services that you supply in exchange for a higher price. Uh, in order to make this stick, it's not just enough, as it turns out, to form a cartel, uh, because people from the outside may, in fact, be able to enter. Uh, so what the labor statutes do is it kind of protects this monopoly by saying that the labor union, once it's established in a particular area, is the exclusive bargaining agent for all the workers in that particular unit, whether they voted for it or whether they did not. The offset is a duty of fair representation, which never quite works out because there are many inherent conflicts of interest. Uh, but everybody is aware of the fact that whenever somebody has monopoly power, there are fiduciary duties because you could use that power to shift wealth from one side to another. Uh, the initial development of the National Labor Relations Act when automation was king and assembly lines were common increased uh, the total union penetration into the American labor force quite substantially so that by 1954 it was about 35% of the total working force in the United States. Today in the private sector it's a little over 6%, maybe a little less, but that's the rough area. And so what you've seen is a decline of over 80% in union representation, and the question is why is that happening? And I think it's fair to say, given what you've asked me. And the first thing to note is there are remarkably few changes in the labor law in the period between 1954 and the present of 60 years. Um, and indeed, the case law in this area, unlike the case law with respect to the Civil Rights Act, has essentially had some union victories and some managed union victories. But what I've always liked to say is if you assume the statute put the ball on the 50-yard line, you're looking at the Civil Rights Act. Right now, you're in the red zone because it's moved very substantially. If you look at the labor statute, you're still between the 240-yard lines. The, the surprise victories both ways, basically stable. Uh, so if you're trying to explain the decline, and it's dramatic, you can't do it by changes in statute. Uh, what you have to do is to do it mainly by changes in 
of the way in which work in the United States is organized. Our uh, first change, I think, which is extremely important, is that we're an old, more open and open and more free economy when it comes to the importation of foreign goods. Foreign goods are made by foreign laborers. They compete with domestic goods, and they can drive the price down. The moment you're at a competitive level, a, an adversarial union doesn't do you very much good because there are no monopoly rents to get, and so these unions tend to weaken. American uh, United Auto Workers had you know several million workers over 40 years ago, and now it's down to about 20% of that particular total. Perfectly predictable given the, the nature of the situation in question. The second thing is the way that production is organized is much different. In order for a union to work with collective bargaining, it has to minimize the conflict amongst its workers. If there are large numbers of assembly line workers doing more or less the same kinds of things, you could get a single price schedule, make a few tweaks on it here and there, and the whole thing will start to work out pretty well. But the moment it turns out people have highly idiosyncratic kinds of jobs, a collective bargain is much more difficult to do because you can't be a faithful agent to two people, no matter how honest you are, if their interests turn out to um, conflict. And the third factor is labor turnover is extremely common today. And uh, if you're talking about a union, you'll have to invest at the front end, get the structure in place, uh, put the officers in charge, and then hope to get your return by playing the game as it goes further down the road. Uh, if people are switching jobs every two years, there's going to be no one who's going to become the union champion because there's nobody who's going to stay around for the gold watch after four years of service or 40 years of service. And then the last thing, of course, these conflicts are really very, very acute. Uh, the one that I'm going to stress most right now is the conflict about age. Unions tend to be dominated by their senior workers who've been there for a long time. Seniority, by coincidence, turns out to be one of the absolute strong features of standard union contract. That means the governance structure is controlled at the top, and these folks are more interested in their pensions and staying on than they are in the welfare of the people down at the bottom. Uh, so that if it turns out that people start to get left off, it's the latecomers that are done, so not the uh, earlier guys. Well, latecomers are going to start to know that, and they'll start gravitating away from union firms. So if you look, for example, at Volkswagen, uh, it is still not unionized in the United States, even though it's unionized everywhere else, uh, because what workers have understood is that the union may get you short-term increases in wages at some considerable cost, but the dangers of job erosions are so fantastically large uh, that you're not likely to keep that job anyhow. And the difference in wages between a union and a non-union job in current terms is sometimes as much as 60%, $30 an hour on a $45 wage, also with respect to pensions and so forth. So the union movement has not turned out to be sustainable, and it's not going to be sustainable unless there's some very, very radical shift in the laws. And if that takes place, uh, it may well be that the losses in productivity overall will be so great that the union power, uh, by way of monopoly, will not be worth uh, what it costs in economic efficiency to obtain it. There's an interesting point in here that comes up in your piece and in Sam Hammond's. There's some agreement and some disagreement between the two of you, which is you spend some time talking about this alternative model of what are called company unions, which is worker organizations that do not have the adversarial castes that we associate with traditional unions. Now, you note in your piece that these are, in your judgment, superior models to unions as we know them, but that they're almost impossible to establish under current American law. Hammond seems much more enthusiastic than you, though, in thinking about these 
there's something you really want to see take off. It's something you would like to see widely adapted in the American economy. Uh, so explain the concept of company unions for us and then what you think both their merits and their limitations are. Right. Well, the first thing, of course, is a company union is essentially a union which is established by the company. What it does is it selects a series of workers to run this thing. They do not have any power to bargain over terms and conditions. They have enormous influence on the company because what they're allowed to do is to speak to management in a direct and candid way. And to the extent that the union and the management management can kind of resolve problems before they emerge, uh, there's a huge efficiency gain that has come from that. If it's a company union, it cannot use the information uh, that it acquires from management against the firm in negotiations. So management will start to share more information with a company union than it would share with an adversarial union. That means you get a better mix of information from two sides and you can start to make better decisions. Now, this company union model is really quite viable, and in fact, you could see many cases under the current law where there seems to be a company union, and then the moment an outside union comes in and tries to organize, you have to essentially disband the company union. Uh, the labor statute contains a section called 882, which essentially is a prohibition against company unions. And the unions wanted that provision in there, not because they thought company unions were not going to be efficient, but they realized that if management had a company union in place and the situation worked well, it was going to make it that much harder for an outside union to come in and to try to take over the establishment. And so the ban is now put into place. In my view, what happens is the unions now will get neither company unions, which the workers often want, or outside unions, because what has happened in American labor is could be summarized in a very simple proposition. You get a maximum team, a, a management team, which is hostile to union, and you get a very skilled union trying to organize a group of workers. Well, what's the likelihood that one side will win over the other? And I think the basic situation is a little bit like a game of tic-tac-toe. If management doesn't make a mistake, it's a draw, which means that the union doesn't come in. Unionization today depends upon making management mistakes, which will allow workers to be riled and the union to come in. And so if you have an arbitrary boss or if you have some kind of a capricious ruling, you're going to see the trouble. Management knows this very, very well. And so what they do is when they deal with their anti-union structures, they don't wait for a union to come on the scene and then try to figure out how to deal with it. They are working from the day they start to figure out what they can do to maximize the efficiency of the firm attract the workers that they want, and keep the unions at bay. So I could recall speaking some 40 years ago with one of my former students, and she was a management lawyer. And so I asked her the question, when do you guys start your anti-union activities? And she says, first stage is where you locate the plant. That determines what state. It determines what site. You never locate a plant if you're a skilled management team where the front door is on a public street because if that's the case, then it's much easier for pickets to bar you uh, consistent with the law. So you then do that. Then you figure out well, where you place the plant inside the plot, uh, what kinds of structures you put in so people to ingress, where your parking lots are located, how you organize your lunch areas and your private areas. All of this stuff makes a huge difference. And you can do this before the National Labor Relations Act comes along. And then if a union tries to organize, 
It's moving into a physical environment, which is least conducive to what it wants. And you say, well, is this really the case? But if you look back at the earlier cases, there are endless numbers of decisions which say, can unions come into the hallways? Can they come into the lunchrooms? Can they come into the rest areas? Can they come outside and congregate by the front steps? Uh, these cases are very tightly fought. There's a lot of disagreement about them. And if you're a management team, you don't wait for the fight to come. You just design the facilities in the way in which it works. Then you have the question of how you equip the plant. What side of stuff do you put in there? Uh, if you know that automation is going to be viable, what you do is you figure out what your workstations are in a way that makes it more heterogeneous, which means it's harder for a union to organize and so forth. Knowing all of this, uh, what you can see is that it's just very difficult to do it. So in the old days, you used to be organized entire plants and get 20, 50,000 workers at a time. Now you lose that number at a time whenever a plant closes down. But if you start looking at the cases, there are huge battles over getting 25 students, 25 workers into it. Years ago, I taught a case called Gissel, uh, which had to do with unfair labor practices and so forth. And this was a huge fight, which went up and down to the Supreme Court several times or whatever it was. And then one of my students looked at me and said, Professor Epstein, I don't understand. This was a bargaining unit of under 30 people. If it takes you that much effort uh, to unionize 30 people, nothing is going to matter. And it turns out that it's right. So the unions have a huge disadvantage. This is not lamentable from a social point of view. Uh, the point is they don't have any efficiencies that they can offer at this particular time, since the one method that may work, the company union, is off the table. Richard, there's a, a theme in here in these pieces. You see it especially in Michael Lynn's piece of an argument that goes like this. Don't delude yourself into thinking that perfectly competitive markets or a thing that happens much outside of economics classrooms. Basically, if, if you're Joe Lunchbucket and you're negotiating your salary up against an enormous corporation, there's a serious imbalance of market power there. You don't have the power to move the mountain. And so as a result of that, providing the opportunity to band workers together via collective bargaining is a logical and, in fact, necessary corrective there. You need that to put the two sides on something closer to level ground. How do you respond to that argument? Well, I think it's wrong. The first point that you have to note is that a firm could be in multiple markets at the same time, some of which are competitive and some of which are not. Uh, so for the most part, if you're dealing with product markets, there's a broad class of important parties, common carriers, telephone companies, electric companies, gas companies, and so forth, which are in fact monopolistic in their structure, not in their labor markets, but in their product markets. And for those markets, one always thinks about rate regulation, a rate of return regulation is a potential solution. There are a lot of pitfalls with it. It's not always works in a dynamic setting, even though it may work in a competitive, in a static setting, but at least you know that. For the labor markets, I'll look at it the other way. Suppose you're a welder and there's one huge company uh, which makes widgets and uses a lot of welders. Well, there are thousands of other firms that use welders on construction projects of one kind or another, repair projects, navigation projects, or seagoing vessels and so forth. Uh, so the workers are rarely in a situation where there's only a big firm that they can do. Then what you try to do is to get some kind of um, empirical evidence of what this happens is, and it turns out if you're trying to figure out a really impressive period in which wages start to go up, looking at the period between 1900 and 1935, before the labor statutes come in there, is not a bad period in which to look 
cat. And as you would predict under the neoclassical theory, what happens is wage increases and productive in increases start to go hand in hand. The important thing to understand about that, which Lynn misses, is they're going hand in hand. A management is making more money when its workers are making more money. It has no reason whatsoever to deviate from that cooperative equilibrium. But now suppose what you do is you want to put a union in place. The only way it's going to get a super competitive wage is it's got to have essentially some kind of monopoly power. At this point, uh, when the firm wins, the union loses. When the union wins, the firm uses. They're going to be conflictual. And what you have to do when you're dealing with those increased wages, ask A, you're going to be able to get them in this difficult bargaining system, because if you push too hard, the entire firm can go under. And B, if you get them, are you going to be able to keep them for a very long period of time, given the other kinds of dynamic changes that have to take in the market? One of the huge disadvantages that a union has is as follows. When management simply controls the thing and it wants to make an improvement because it thinks it's going to be efficient, they just change the labor contracts and the workers at will can either quit or sign on. Most sign on because these firms are relatively stable. If you're running a union, it's long been established. If you wish to change the kind of equipment that's using, the length of shifts, the kinds of workers that you have, you have to renegotiate that with the union. At this point, you've got a bilateral monopoly. They want this and you want that. And what happens is you cannot be responsive to the changes in technology and the changes in market conditions if, in fact, you have this second tier of negotiation that you have to use. Uh, so what happens is Lynn uh, mistakes what is needed in the maybe in, in the product market and putting it in the labor market. And one of the things that you see is if, you know, you're trying to figure out what the difficulties are in the labor market in terms of the antitrust law, that also is a striking disconfirmation of what he says. The single most important case in labor law with respect to unionization is a case called Lovey Lawler, which was decided in 1908, long before this became a big deal. And the key finding in that particular decision was that a uh, secondary boycott by a union that's a boycott against not the company it's trying to organize, but a boycott against one of its suppliers in those cases is a per se violation of the antitrust laws. And the reason that that's the case is that these secondary boycotts are so powerful that either you put the antitrust law against them or the whole industry structure is going to break down. And so people said, well, what we're going to do is we're going to get rid of Lowley Lawler. And they did. They passed Section 6 of the Clayton Act in 1914, which said in so many terms uh, that the organization of workers is essentially perfectly okay because labor is not a commodity and therefore it's out from underneath the antitrust law. Uh, but then when the secondary boycotts start coming up again under the National Labor Relations Act, with the Taft-Hartley, all of a sudden they put very strong restrictions on the ways in which these things can work. Uh, the problem about the secondary boycott is it's too strong a market record because what it does is it not only has the firm at risk, it has all of its suppliers at risk, and the whole thing just tends to topple over. And so even the labor statutes don't allow for that. And I think the fair thing to say is it's a mistake to assume that market power uh, depends upon your size vis-a-vis -vis the size of your employer. If it turns out you've got a set of skills and an employer needs a 1,000 people like you, he's got to be able to bid it up to get the 1,000. 
Uh, so his demand is going to be greater, and therefore what happens is he has to go deeper into the pie and has to raise the price. And if there's a small firm that offers you a bit more by way of wages and a comprehensive package, well, better to go with the small firm than the big firm. And in fact, people leave big firms all the time for small firms if they think they could get more tailored individual opportunities. So I think it's a very naive view about the way in which labor markets work. The dynamism in these markets is much greater than his model presupposes, which is sort of static. There's this helpless pool of workers sitting out there. They can't move to a different car job town. They can't change their job specifications. They don't have any friends or other kinds of contacts. And if you have that model, well, then they're a bunch of dupes. But in any real worker market, these workers understand what it's about. And firms have to wage, raise their wages if it turns out that they have a real increased demand for what they want. Uh, because if they don't, they're going to end up short. And if they end up short in labor, they're going to end up short in the product market. And that's going to hurt them. The final question that I'll ask you, pulling back a bit from the symposium, we are a couple of months away from the election. How should we think about these issues, about labor, about unions, in this case, public and private sector, in a Trump administration second term versus a hypothetical Biden administration? Um, I think this is perhaps one of the biggest area of contrast between the two departments. Trump essentially is pro-labor but anti-union, uh, by which I mean is that he's not trying to strengthen monopoly power for the union, but trying to remove the obstacles to entering into labor markets that are posed by various kinds of taxes, minimum wage laws, and the like. And if you look at his performance in terms of wage increases for minority workers, low-income workers, and the like, it far exceeds anything that took place under the Obama administration, where growth ironically was concentrated in the upper echelon of the labor situation because the tax and other barriers to entries that happened at the bottom of the market had a much greater effect. So if you think about taxes being, say, a dollar per hour, on a given worker. And one guy is working 20 hours or getting $20 an hour, he's got 5% tax. If somebody's earning $3 an hour, it's a 33% tax. And so removing the taxes helps the small guy. Biden says he's the friend of American labor. They will have always a welcome. Well, American labor succeeds by benefiting its members and hurting all other workers elsewhere in the system. It also succeeds by threatening strikes and creating general instability. The standard labor law rhetoric is that strikes and discipline and dislocations are, quote, incidental damages they really don't count. But of course they count. These are a direct consequence of blocking voluntary arrangements between individuals, which will produce social gains to both parties in the particular transaction. And so one of the reasons why I'm pretty sure I will end up being more for Trump and less on the than I was before, is I regard a potential Biden administration as a nonstop catastrophe on labor relations because what he really thinks is he's clever enough to figure out what kind of labor monopoly will be strong enough to squeeze the lemon, that is to squeeze the employer, without running them dry. And there's nobody who has a hand that's strong enough who can figure out how to fine-tune markets in order to get that desirable well, uh, outcome of wealth transfers on the one hand without wealth destruction on the other. And so I think the Biden position is an unmitigated catastrophe on labor issues. You've been listening to The Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. Remember, you can read Richard's column, The Libertarian, at Defining Ideas at Hoover.org. And you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. And if you enjoy the show, please rate it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. For Richard Epstein, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening.
This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.